Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, Peter, you say you have a favorite quote from Shakespeare about philosophy? Yes, and it's nice and short. It's from Much Ado About Nothing. Never yet philosopher that could endure the toothache patiently. Hello and welcome to The Plays of the Thing, your podcast for all things Shakespeare. I am joined again by Emily Mayetta, and we also are joined by a special guest who we were going to introduce in just a moment. But Emily... Let's tell the story first of how we met Dr. Peter Adamson. Let's do we met Well, we didn't really meet him at your daughter's wedding, <laughs> but we met his liaison. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> do you remember that? I sure do. We And we also, well, I guess, Tim, you had known his podcast previously, but it was my introduction to his podcast. Right. The History right. of Philosophy Without Any Gaps. So we met Pavel. What's his last name, Tim? Why are you kicking it to me? <laughs> Pavel, you have to forgive us, Pavel. Pavel Trikowski? A um, student of Dr. Adamson's. He's getting his PhD. He's writing his PhD on Augustine's conception of the mind. And we talked to Pavel for a long time. And he said, boy, you should really listen to my professor's podcast. And Tim, you had listened to it. And as soon as he said his advisor's name, I said, wait, your advisor is Peter Adamson? I listened to the the history of philosophy without any gaps. Is there any way that he would be on the show? And Pavel was kind of demure about it. He sure was. He was kind of like, yeah, uh, we'll see. So all and, that being then, said, yeah, yeah. Right after that, he recorded a bunch of podcasts on Shakespeare and it seemed like it was meant to be. 
the perfect opportunity. Yep. Peter Adamson is professor of philosophy at the LMU in Munich and at King's College London. And his podcast, you have to go check it out, The History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps, takes listeners through the history of philosophy with no gaps. So it's literally a look with back no at gaps. the ideas. It has no gaps. <laughs> so ideas, lives, and historical context context for major philosophers and also some of the lesser known figures in the tradition. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. And thanks to Pavel for bringing us together. Yeah, yeah. thank you for coming. Thanks to Pavel. I have my emissaries going all over the world. I know. It was, it was fantastic. So you're, you're a scholar of philosophy, in particular ancient philosophy. What drew you to Shakespeare? And do you have, was there an experience that kind of drew you toward his plays? Well, there was kind of two things going on here. One is that, as you said, I've been doing this podcast that goes through the entire history of philosophy. It's the idea. <laughs> and I've been doing it since 2010, so 13 years. And that means I'm finally up to the 16th century. <laughs> <laughs> As we said, you know, without any gaps. But it, I, it's not my fault that there's so much philosophy. It's true. I, so I make no apologies. And I actually, in general, one of the reasons that it's taking so long is that I often kind of look at other things than what you might expect. For example, what's going on in the sciences, in literature, in art, in religion, whatever. And so not only covering like the obvious philosophical figures, mm -hmm. if actually, if you think about it, there's not that many obvious mm -hmm. philosophical figures from the 16th century, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, one of them would be Montaigne, who's mm -hmm. a rough contemporary of Shakespeare and who will be relevant probably in this conversation. Mm -hmm. But it's not like there's dozens of famous philosophers from the 16th century. So here I thought it was especially useful to kind of look around and see what else is going on. So I think I would have covered Shakespeare anyway, even if I didn't care about Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But as it turns out, when I was in college, I actually was almost an English major. I was one class away from being an English major. But then I decided I was going to grad school for philosophy, so I didn't need to finish that. I just kept with my, stayed my, with my other major, which was obviously philosophy. And I actually took courses on Shakespeare in college and I've been seeing Shakespeare plays since I was a teenager, I guess. I've, I lived in London for a long time, which is obviously a great place to see Shakespeare. So I've been to the Globe and I've hmm. seen productions of Hamlet and all the rest of it. And so in a way, um, this was almost like a great excuse to write something and release some podcasts about something I really love anyway, mm -hmm. which is Shakespeare. And although I have to say that it's not like I read a Shakespeare play every couple of months. You know, I mean, obviously, I have to read all this other philosophy stuff, right? Right. <laughs> and when I started reading him, reading him again, I was like, gosh, this is really good. I mean, right? believe the hype. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. He deserves so, the yeah, hype. I was just sort of blown away all over again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was like reading out sentences to my family, like, mm -hmm. listen to this. And they were like, mm -hmm. yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Go back to your study, dad. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> we're doing all of the plays. We're coming toward the end and we're picking up some of the lesser known plays like Timon of Athens and even in Timon of Athens, which by Shakespeare's account, it's just not a great play within great. the context of like, it's Shakespeare we're talking about. But even in Timon of Athens, there are lines that are so lovely and perceptive and they're just kind of throwaway lines by mm -hmm. some tertiary character. It's just mm -hmm. amazing. 
It's amazing. Yeah, he's his really ravishing. I mean, you just somehow, mm -hmm. sometimes, even if you were reading it for a kind of utilitarian purpose, as I was, sometimes you just stop. Yes. And you just think, how? How did you write that sentence, man? Virginia Woolf has this line, it was as if he was plunged in a sea of words and came up dripping. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. It's that's Virginia Woolf? It's Virginia Woolf. Wow. Was there, so Peter, was there a first play that you fell in love with, maybe as an undergraduate? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I can definitely remember reading Hamlet. Because hmm. I, I, sorry, this is like the most obvious answer I could give. But <laughs> For a philosopher. The one that comes to mind. <laughs> it is. And it, I think maybe because even then, I was sort of dimly aware that it was resonating with my philosophical interests. Mm. And especially all the stuff about the play within a play mm -hmm. and the self-consciousness of mm -hmm. theater. Uh, actually, if you'll pardon my taking a quick digression into one of my other little obsessions, which is Buster Keaton, as people <laughs> who listen to my podcast really? will know. <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> I also like giraffes. <laughs> um, oh my goodness. We're uncovering so many fascinating things. things. <laughs> yeah, so... So Buster Keaton has this movie called Sherlock Jr., which mm. everyone should go see if they haven't. So that's a silent movie, so you would think probably not going to be very comparable to Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But it's the ultimate cinematic or early cinematic representation of the idea of reflecting on cinema as an art form. Interesting. Because what happens oh. is a guy falls asleep and dreams that he steps into a movie. Mm. And there's actually a joke when it first happens where he steps into the screen and he's in an environment which then changes because there's a cut in the movie so like he it's like he climbs up on a bench and then there's a cut and then he's all of a sudden somewhere where there's no bench so he falls huh. and this is all being oh, done with 1920s technology right so it's very oh. shakespearean and what's the name of it again sherlock jr sherlock jr that sounds fascinating i'm gonna watch that one <laughs> So one of the things that comes up over and over in the play is um, I'm thinking especially about something like the end of Merchant of Venice. These two couples, the play is concluded, they're in a garden, and one of the guys is kind of singing an ode to the constellations, the organization of the constellations, and how the harmony of the spheres mm -hmm. sing to each other. And it's for a 21st century audience, I'm sure it just sounds maybe a little bit crazy. And it reminds us of like, oh yeah, Shakespeare, as much as he feels like a contemporary for somebody living in the 21st century in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways he wasn't. So from your reading and research, is there a most pressing philosophical question from Shakespeare's day? So that not just in Shakespeare himself, but in like the environment or the culture. Uh, in the environment, yes, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it's more that there's one source of philosophical issues and problems that kind of cluster around a particular thing that's going on, which of course is the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Mm. Right. And I mean, I've just done dozens and dozens of podcasts about all of the philosophical issues that arose from that. But I think if you had to boil it down to just one uh, set of issues. It's about, or the philosophical problem of the Reformation is about how can you be sure about what you believe? 
mm-hmm. what should you do about people who disagree with you? Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So because basically we've moved from a culture where everyone's kind of rowing in the same direction, mm-hmm. even if there are obviously disagreements about all kinds of things, but at least they could all kind of rally around mm-hmm. a unified notion of Christianity. And then you take the thing that is the most powerful cultural force in Europe mm-hmm. and you split it in two, right? So it's almost like everyone in your town is supporting a team and then all of a sudden there's two teams, mm-hmm. right? And there are lots of upshots and implications from that, but a couple of them would be an interest in skepticism, right? Like, how can I be so sure? Mm-hmm. So if I'm a Protestant, am I sure the Catholics are wrong? Mm-hmm. If I'm a Protestant, am I sure that the Puritans are wrong because I'm a moderate Protestant, right? Or vice versa. Mm-hmm. And in, in general, it looks like all of a the sudden there's a huge burden on me to take responsibility for my own beliefs in a way that wasn't true a couple of right. hundred years, right? Because I have to figure out I, what I kind think of Christian to be now. I, I was looking at the fullest of Shakespeare's plays in the number of plays that deal with bad kings is kind of an overwhelming majority. And I wonder if there's kind of an overlay here. Like, what do you do when the authority, the king, is acting crazy? Leontes, Emily, in mm-hmm. The Winter's Tale. Um, because this is kind of like the singular voice of authority in the realm, and now he's doing something wicked uh, he's you know accusing his wife the innocent one of all sorts of debauchery or whatever and i've wondered if that's a little bit of an overlay to just and i'm asking you to speculate a little bit peter if that's a little bit of an overlay to the thing that you're talking about this this epistemic rupture that's happening during shakespeare's day yeah i think it definitely is i mean lear would be another example mm-hmm. of someone a, a king who's acting in a way that's inappropriate but it's mm-hmm. not nearly as crass right so mm-hmm. what his right. demand that his daughters kind of uh show unqualified devotion to him mm-hmm. and fealty to him just because he can mm-hmm. right yeah um so i mean and i think actually you're really right to put your finger on that because the another corollary of that problem about skepticism or responsibility for your beliefs or something like that is what do I do if following my conscience leads me to adopt the form of Christianity that is even illegal? Mm-hmm. And this is not something right. that was only happening in England, right? It was happening in right. France. So you have the Huguenots right. who are fleeing France, sometimes to England, mm-hmm. right? And in fact, we have very good reason to think that Shakespeare knew a lot about this, right? I think he lived with some Huguenots at some point, mm. right? Um, but certainly he knows all about the issue, right? So... Yeah. In fact, everybody knows about the issue. You can't live in Europe without knowing about the issue. And one of the, I, th- I think if you had to like make a more specific uh, identification of like what is the most urgent philosophical problem, the most urgent philosophical problem is literally, are you allowed to assassinate a ruler mm. who enforces the wrong religious beliefs? Right. So the Huguenots had written treatises on the question of tyrannicide. And there had been a lot of discussion about, you know, under what circumstances would a private citizen or a group of people be allowed to depose an unjust king? And that's absolutely something that Shakespeare is reflecting on. Sometimes he reflects on it, you know, in some of the history plays. You have 
depictions of rebellion, right, against more or less wicked kings. But the best example, and it's maybe the best example because by moving back to Rome, he's allowed to reflect on it with some distance. Hmm. The best example of, is, of course, Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. where you have Brutus and Cassius, but especially Brutus with his long hesitation and then his speech trying to justify why mm-hmm. he's done what he's done. So he is a tyrannicide, right? In his own mind, even, he's a tyrannicide. Mm-hmm. And by showing him reflecting on the acceptability of what he's planning to do, and then by showing him justifying what he has done, Shakespeare is letting his audience actually watch a tyrannicide happen mm-hmm. in real time, mm-hmm. so to speak, which is actually an incredibly daring thing to do. As I say, it's something mm-hmm. you can only get away with yeah. because he's it's sort of removed. Sort of Right. But that's yeah. absolutely a, a, a storyline and something that would have interested him because he lives in an age where the Protestant Reformation has made that a very salient problem. Right. Like, are there, is there, are there, are there any circumstances under which you're allowed to do this? And of course, Shakespeare being Shakespeare gives you this very kind of nuanced, right. ambiguous portrayal of the whole issue. I just taught I, Henry V to my students and we were um, doing Henry's monologue right before he goes into battle. And he says, God be with me, even though my father killed Richard. Right. Right. And he says, I've, yeah, Bol- I'm it's paying, Bolingbroke, right? Yeah. I'm paying yeah. for, I'm paying for people to pray for him. I've done this. I have people in my employ and more will I do if you will only give me, but it, it really stuck out to me this time, that sort of preoccupation with, the divine right of kings or whatever that is, you know, that he feels somehow himself that that was not maybe the thing that should be done. There's a line, I'm thinking of Richard II, who was deposed while right. he's on the throne. And he's not a tyrant. He's just kind of preoccupied with the wrong things. <laughs> and his most famous monologue is this kind of realization that, his being a king is largely consists of trappings, not of any sort of like metaphysical distinction between him and a commoner. And I just want to read the last several lines. He's saying this to his court after he's been deposed, cover your heads and mock not flesh and blood with solemn reverence. Like just right there, mock not your flesh and blood with solemn reverence, throw away respect, tradition, form and ceremony duty and ceremonious duty For you have but mistook me all this while. I live with bread like you, Mm -hmm. feel want, taste grief, need friends. Subjected thus, how can you say to me, I am a king? Henry V has an almost exact repetition of that. Really? Yes, ceremony. He goes to the camp, right? When he's he's like pretending to be a soldier and he's hanging out with the soldiers in the camp. Mm -hmm. And he has the whole thing. Who am I? You say this is all on me. The soldiers say that. And he says, who am I? I'm just a man. That's all I am. Actually, isn't it? I don't know what to do with this idea, but isn't it interesting that it's a lot like what Shylock says? In his that most famous speech. Yes. Okay, so oh, yeah. Jew. You're so it's right. A, it's the reverse, right? I'm not a king. I'm a Jew. Yes. But if you prick me, do I not bleed? Like, I'm a man just like you I'm are. I'm a man. Yeah. Yeah. So the but from a position of, it's the inverse position. It's the inverse of, position. The position of almost powerlessness. Yeah. yeah. yeah How the interesting. The most despised person is just a man, just as the most exalted person is just a man. Right. Right. Isn't this a little bit um, that preoccupation with authority, but it's also then the 
the other side of that is also what is the role of the individual, right? And he is always looking at this role of the individual. What mm-hmm. is the individual? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and going back to Lear, as you mentioned earlier, Peter, I think of somebody like Kent mm-hmm. who has to make a choice. Who am I going to, my king is going crazy. Now I have to kind of find within myself the resources to still serve him in some way. Yeah. Peter, I cut you off. No, I cut you off. But the, I, I think actually there's a bit of a tension there in Shakespeare because on the one hand, we we always are made to feel these individual struggles with responsibility, like Brutus, of course, mm-hmm. would be another example, right? Like, I can't sleep because I'm so mm-hmm. worried about whether I should kill Caesar, right? But on the other hand, often the audience knows what's supposed to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Either because it's historical, right? I, we all know Brutus kills Caesar, and so mm-hmm. insofar as he's dithering and humming and hawing about doing it, he's kind of just filling time until he fulfills his historical fate as the sacrificial murderer. fate. <laughs> right. But it's not it's not even just that that we know what happens in the history plays and the Roman plays. It's also that the mere fact that, okay, this is a comedy, so I know they all get married. Mm-hmm. This is a tragedy, so I know that the hero gets killed at the ends, mm-hmm. or not the hero, but the tragic hero, the central figure. And somehow Shakespeare manages to simultaneously make us feel the struggle of the individual who's in this situation, while also obviously letting us understand that there's only one thing that can happen. Yeah. And actually, that that also, you might, again, connect that to things that were going on philosophically at the time because of the Reformation. Because, of course, a big part of the Reformation, mm-hmm. and especially Calvinist Protestantism, right. is determinism. Right. right? So God has already figured out or decided mm-hmm. what's going to happen. And so I'm just kind of playing out a role mm-hmm. that's been written for me by mm-hmm. God since eternity. Yeah. And you can think of that pattern that comes up again and again in Shakespeare. And, of course, Hamlet, again, is the most obvious mm-hmm. example where someone's been given a job. Like here, your role is to be a tyrannicide here, a tyrannicide and a, mm-hmm. a, what is a patris? Is it a patricide if you're killing your your uncle who's your father now? Your uncle who's your, now <laughs> your father? Anyway, avuncular, an avuncular side. And you know he's going to kill Claudius, right? Even if you don't know the story because you've seen the other version or whatever, you still kind of know that Hamlet's going to wind up killing Claudius and presumably dying at the end. Sorry, spoiler mm-hmm. alert. <laughs> but. And actually, one interpretation of Hamlet says, well, Shakespeare's got this kind of problem, which is there's a kind of dramatic, uh, sort of, there's something dramatically unsatisfying about the lack of suspense, mm-hmm. given that you know what's going to happen. And Shakespeare solves that by basically making the character into a man who doesn't want to do what he's supposed to do, mm-hmm. right? So that's a very dramatic example, but I think sometimes you feel it with more minor characters, like the one you mentioned from Lear, because with minor characters, it's actually a little bit more open what they might do, right? Like, will Mm. they join the rebellion Mm -hmm. or not? Well, we don't know from the fact that it's a tragedy that Kent will or will not, you know, do one thing or the other. Um, Or um, another example, going back to Hamlet, might be Horatio. So, like, what is Horatio going to do about all of this? Who cares, in some sense, right? Mm-hmm. But also, he's free in a way that Hamlet actually mm-hmm. isn't, mm-hmm. right? 
And these these secondary characters. So so in a play like Julius Caesar, we sort of know, or Shakespeare's audience would know, Brutus and Cassius, we know what they're gonna do to some degree. But some of these other secondary characters, say in Lear, we don't know Kent from the historical record. He's kind of mm-hmm. populated by Shakespeare. And so that's who we're kind of watching for in the play. And maybe that's who, as an audience member, we're kind of trying to learn from or, I don't know, identify with. Is, is this what you're saying? Yeah, like, what would I do? Mm-hmm. So, the, yeah. so Kent is more like us than Hamlet is because yeah. we're not tragic heroes who kind of know that mm-hmm. we're tragic heroes. Another in- example, actually, from Caesar, Julius Caesar, is Cicero. So obviously, we do mm-hmm. know what happened to Cicero mm-hmm. if we're well-educated Elizabethans. But Cicero barely appears in the play, but there's quite a bit of discussion about him because they don't know which way he's going to go, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so he's a character in the play who, um, whose motivations and decisions are mysterious to the people you're actually seeing on stage. Mm-hmm. So he kind of represents the unknown, like, you know, okay, here's this important guy, this rhetorician and political player on the Roman scene. And we don't know whether he's with us or against us, right? Um, whereas we know exactly what Cassius thinks. Mm-hmm. And we know what Brutus is going to do because the whole point of the play is that he's going to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so I think with Cicero, you see that even in a case where it's a matter of historical record, which side they were on, as it were, Shakespeare is still able to make to have that kind of dynamic where there's someone whose actions seem to be genuinely open as mm-hmm. opposed to other characters who seem fated to do fated. something. Mm-hmm. This is remarkable yeah. that you, we're bringing this up. I did a talk um, at the West Virginia Shakespeare Festival on Shakespeare and leadership. And, and the more I thought about the plays and tried to kind of bring leadership lessons, for lack of a better phrase, into the talk, the more I found myself looking to secondary characters. I wasn't mm. looking at the kings, even though the kings are at the top of the power pyramid. Mm-hmm. It was secondary characters that I kept thinking, they're the ones who are actually instructive. So Kent came to mind. Um, is it pa- Paulina from The Lina Winter's, Winter's Tale, Tale, who's yeah. one of our heroes, Emily? <laughs> she is serving the queen. The queen is under indictment. And she's the one who steps into the courtroom and mm-hmm. says, this has got to stop. What's happening is lunacy. Mm-hmm. So, Peter, you just gave me a kind of an explanation as to why I kept looking to these secondary characters. Because the, the lead, the head character, the titular character, is kind of faded in a way. We mm-hmm. know what's going to happen with mm-hmm. most of these kings and even with the prince, Hamlet. Mm-hmm. So that's, that was really, that was helpful. Yeah, I think it works with Macbeth too, right? Are we allowed to say that yeah. the name of that play on your on your podcast? I think it's okay on a podcast. Yeah. I think there's special so, rules for that. I mean, Lady Macbeth, <laughs> right? So Lady Mac- Lady Macbeth is hardly dithering, but she, unlike her husband, has not been told what he's going to do or what. Right, not right. Not, she's, she's not in the prophecy. What's going to happen to him? Right, right. right. Happened to her, um, and Macduff, and so so all these mm-hmm. characters like they're they're kind of free. Right. Making decisions for themselves while Macbeth is kind of almost against his will being pulled towards this fate, kicking and screaming. Right. Um, 
And by the way, actually, that to bring it back to something else we were talking about before, there's a lot of interest in skepticism in Macbeth as well. Huh. So Macbeth keeps saying, oh, how do I know this is I real? Know? How do I yeah. know these witches aren't demons who are trying yep. to fool me? Um, he even says something to the effect of like, oh, well, when people like witches turn up and offer you um, oracles, then you better watch out. Right. You should be suspicious, right? You should yeah. be suspicious. But yeah, it's, <laughs> that is so true. The and as he still falls for it, right? Because he has to, because he's the tragic, he's the tragic central character. Yeah. So in many ways, watching these tragic central characters, the interest in them is sort of their battle, their internal struggle, but it's been predetermined, but we still enjoy Mm -hmm. seeing them or, or there's something so human about seeing them struggle with this fate that they're yeah. going to enact. It's the, it's the compliment, right. Of what happens in comedies, because the joy of the comedy, what we enjoy about the comedy is not watching them get together at the yes, end. Exactly. It's watching all the obstacles. So even today exactly. in romantic comedies, yeah. the, the fun part is, Oh, you know, he just gets in a taxi while she's coming out of the building. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So how do they overcome the obstacles? That too. Yeah. So we're talking about the Protestant Reformation as being this kind of central philosophical question. When you look back at Shakespeare's plays, is there a framework that Elizabethan audiences had kind of inherited that for us today is really alien and confusing? Yeah, I think so. So, I mean, for one thing, uh, to state the obvious, they're just much more religious than we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they're, for them, morality works differently, right? Mm -hmm. so, the, so the idea that you're morally responsible for your own actions itself is a little bit of a new thing that's just emerging because of the Reformation, because prior to that, morality was basically following some kind of authoritative mm -hmm. set of beliefs, right? So it's, again, this this idea that you're almost making up your own morality. Mm -hmm. mm. Not, I mean, obviously, no one's allowed to just decide that murdering people for fun is okay. But people are responsible for deciding what they ought to do mm -hmm. in a way that's new. And I think people at the time would have felt a pull there between the idea that you should just do what you're supposed to do and the idea that you should decide what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but a, a very, and, but a very different kind of, um, background, which maybe something you've discussed in some of your podcasts is, you know, what were they used to in terms of theater prior to the age of yeah. Shakespeare? So something like a medieval mystery play, right? which gives Shakespeare and Shakespeare is aware of all that stuff. And it's in his culture still in a way that isn't for us. So, um, I mean, for us, obviously Shakespeare seems super old. But for Shakespeare's audience, for the Elizabethans, Shakespeare was super new. <laughs> yeah. And the old stuff was medieval theater. And medieval right. theater was very allegorical and mm -hmm. symbolic mm -hmm. and very moral. So it was about, you know, the rise and fall of someone. Or it's even about, you know, portraying the story of Christ mm -hmm. on stage. Yeah. Um, and Shakespeare does occasionally do things like um, having um, having allegorical figures turn up right mm -hmm. or gods or goddesses mm -hmm. turn up um but maybe a character like prospero is sort of medieval mm -hmm. in some ways right because he's like this um 
he, he, he doesn't seem like a normal person who's struggling with some kind of existential, at least to me, he doesn't seem like a normal person who's struggling with an existential situation. He seems more like a type, mm -hmm. mm. right? He's the magician. Right. Right. And he has right. all his power and he's making things happen. Um, he, he's, and of course, people are always, you know, have this idea that Prospero is supposed to somehow represent the playwright or represent Shakespeare, but I'm not sure that's true. It might be more that he represents just power. Mm -hmm. mm. Right. Um, I, I, I want to turn the conversation a little bit toward characters. And I want both of you to answer this question. Part of the mystery of Shakespeare's power is that he, I think, has you fall in love with villains, just really, really terrible people. Mm -hmm. So my question for each of you do we get to ask do you, you a as favorite, well? Do you have a favorite? Yeah, you get to ask me also. Okay. I, although, Emily, I wonder if we might choose the same person. Do you have a favorite villain? Do you have a favorite Shakespeare villain? It has to be Iago, doesn't it? Oh, <laughs> I hate him. Okay, okay. Um, then I can have Iago and you're going to have someone else. No, yeah, that's here, perfect. Here's, here's why so why Iago? Hate, what about Iago? Here's why you shouldn't hate Iago. Okay, so okay. obviously he, he's hateful, right? Um, and I think actually... Um, we actually, Patrick Gray, someone who I interviewed for my podcast, yeah, one of the points that he interview. made, I don't remember this is in the interview or whether we we're just talking about it before or after, but he, he said to me that he thinks that modern day audiences, um, have, uh, uh this, and maybe this would be another way in which the play worked differently for Elizabethans mm -hmm. than it does for us. We see Othello's being about race, mm -hmm. right? Mm. And so we can't help but see Iago is someone who's victimizing a black character, mm -hmm. right? Pro possibly in part for racist reasons, right? But that's not really, and I think Patrick's right about this, that that's really not what Othello is about. I mm. agree. It, I mean, so if you, it, I mean, it's very clear that Othello is a more, he's black, right? But if you um, ask Shakespeare or his audience, what is the most important thing about Othello? I'm not even sure his being black would be in the top three, mm -hmm. but for sure mm -hmm. the top one would be he's jealous. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he's jealous. He's a soldier. He's got a temper, but he's nice to his friends. He's loyal, which actually, and of course, Iago exploits the fact that he's mm -hmm. loyal, right? Because Iago is his loyal friend, mm -hmm. as he keeps saying, his true friend. Um, honest Iago, right? This yep. keep, this keeps he says attention. it over and over. So, so, and Iago is interesting philosophically because he's exploiting uncertainty, mm -hmm. right? So, um, there's a, there's a, um, passage where Othello says, by heaven, I'll know your thought. And Iago says, you cannot, if my heart were in your hand. Mm-hmm. Right. So Iago understands the, un the unknowability. I mean, he actually is maybe the character in Shakespeare who most understands what we were saying before. Yep. And he's weaponized it. So he, he knows that other people are unknowable. You could also even think about this, you know, like, um, covert Catholics passing as Protestants, hmm. big issue of the time. Mm -hmm. How do I know whether this person is really a good Christian, a mm -hmm. good Protestant? In other words, I can't because it's in their heart. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, you see that in the period, um, for example, in discussions of using torture to try to extract confessions from Catholics or suspected Catholics, right? 
And one of the things that the Catholics and their sympathizers said is, you you can't use violence to find out what's mm-hmm. in someone's soul, mm. right? Mm. And Iago knows all that, mm-hmm. and he is um, sort of using this point about like the, the unknowability of the self to hide from everyone by by showing himself only to the audience mm-hmm. in soliloquies, right? Mm-hmm. And because yeah, and because Othello is jealous but also skeptical what iago does is he keeps feeding mm-hmm. othello pieces of information so he's That's allowing othello to feel that he's <laughs> being incredibly careful with his beliefs yeah but actually of course he's just teasing him more and yeah. more into this set of false beliefs it's incredibly philosophical everything iago is doing he's like an evil philosopher basically he is that's why i hate him good <laughs> That, I I'm, find glad, that play. I'm glad that Peter picked him just so you, <laughs> I love it. I find Somebody that had play. to pick Iago. I was thinking so too. But when you read it, it is so painful to read Othello's undoing. It is just it is, so it's awful. painful to read. I can hardly stand want, it. But you don't want the villain to be someone who, I mean, you want the villain to be someone who, who brings about something truly, you know, majestically awful. <laughs> <laughs> and Iago, by that count, is an absolute success. He does. It's true. Absolutely. It's yeah. true. Okay, so Emily, favorite yeah, villain. We might say the same. I'm afraid we are. Richard the Third. Yeah. Are oh, we going to yeah. say the same? He was person? my first choice, but I've got a I've got an okay, option you B. Can have a second. Okay, so but, make but your you know case what? for Richard the Third. Well, I think just because you know, that first act where he woos Anne, you just can hardly believe that he's doing it. And he does it. And then he also does it at the end with Elizabeth. He does the exact same thing. And so there's sort of this brilliance about him. But he he also does the Iago thing of speaking straight to the audience, right? Of revealing Mm. his plan. Um, But he is definitely not as smooth or as subtle as Iago. Yeah. He's pretty in your yeah, face. He's, there's a lot your, of brute force in Richard There's a lot III. of brute force and a lot of just killing people. But that that sort of brilliance of um, wordplay and, and gaslighting, I guess we may call that gaslighting in the 21st century. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay, who's Okay, yours? I'm prepared to lose all sorts of respect from both of you, but I'm going to stand by this. I love Claudius in Aww. Hamlet as a... I know we're picking bad people, Emily. There's we're picking bad people. His opening speech when the court is gathered in act one, scene two is an absolute rhetorical masterpiece. And because we know he's the bad guy, I don't think we give it proper credit. It's stunningly powerful. It's incredible. Shoot. Um, Though yet of Hamlet, our dear brother's death, the memory be green. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And that it is it us befitted to bear our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe. I mean, already he's killing it, right? (laughs) Yet so far hath discretion fought with nature that we with wisest sorrow think on him together with remembrance of ourselves. Therefore, our sometimes sister... And now queen. Yeah, that's a great <laughs> just be, line. Just be straight out with your incest there, right? Totally, totally. I just think, I really do think that part of the reason that Hamlet is such a success, because it's a great piece of literature, but I think that Claudius is a powerful antagonist to have to overcome. Mm-hmm. 
He's mm-hmm. always in control. Um, he's very, very wily. You know, he knows how to kind of like cover up the problem um, and yet appear kingly and stately and all those things. I think Claudius is a wonderful, wonderful bad guy. So, Tim, what, so how does how does that the um, scene where he's trying to pray? Oh, yeah. That. Right. That's it's a, a good scene. It's a really good scene. Are oh. you talking, Peter, about like the problem of the staging of that? That's the riddle that, that people talk about. No, I was thinking about whether it's consistent with what you just said about him right. being, you know, in control and right. wily. Because so there, there you feel like he's actually not, he's not at peace with what he's done. He's, so there he's not like Iago. Iago would not right. have, Iago wouldn't be praying. Yeah. Right. yeah so he he's not so iago's not torn yes and claudius is i mean maybe yeah. that makes him a better foil for hamlet because of course hamlet's torn right right and i think that moment for claudius when he's confessing i mean it's a prayer this is his conscience speaking but he keeps it under wraps you know yeah. like we don't of course he says it out loud so that we the audience can hear it but he's not going to go to gertrude and be like you know what Maybe what up. we did was wrong. <laughs> yeah, he's not going to do that. It's, it's, so Richard, I, it's Richard's prayer right before the final battle as well, right? And then he just goes right back it's on genuine, it. It's genuine, right, right. Yeah. yeah, not like Richard's prayer when he's with all the yes. priests and the bishops yes. in the elevated place. Come look at me and look how holy I am, yeah. You know who is also a good bad guy um, who makes a similar point about rhetoric or allows Shakespeare to make a similar point about rhetoric is Mark Antony. Uh, oh yeah. yes, yes. One of my favorite things I read when I was reading all this secondary literature on Shakespeare is that only Shakespeare would put himself in a position where he's got to write a speech for Mark Anthony that absolutely annihilates Brutus's speech, which comes yeah. beforehand, yeah. and then write such an amazing speech for Brutus. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, right. So, he, so he's like, okay, I've got to write two speeches, and one has to clearly be better than the other one. <laughs> So the first thing I'll do is write one of the best speeches anyone has ever written in yeah. any language. Yeah. And then I'll write one that's even And then better. I'll overcome it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And- I totally agree. And when Emily mentioned um, Richard's wooing of Anne, for me, it's a similar accomplishment. Like Richard lays out, okay, so mm-hmm. here's the deal. I murdered I Anne's husband <laughs> and her dad, and now I'm going to woo her. And as an audience, we're like, Good luck. There's no way that you can overcome that. And he does. He does. It's the same thing with Mark Antony. Brutus's speech is so incredible and powerful. You're like, man, sorry, Antony. Sorry. Yeah. And then you get to the end of Antony's speech and it's like, I'm ready to go storm the gates of the city yeah. or whatever. Do you know it's what amazing. I think about when you bring up that speech? Our school's uh, production of that little speech with a high school senior being Anthony. And the young children being the townspeople. Yeah, oh, yeah, let's go. It was so great, wasn't it? Read us the will. <laughs> like the read us the will, Mark Antony. Read us yeah. the will. <laughs> what I was thinking, though, is that the thing that, to me, made me connect that to what you were saying about Claudius is that Shakespeare is actually really worried about rhetoric, mm-hmm. which is interesting, right? Because rhetoric is such a huge part of the Renaissance mm-hmm. and you know, 15th, 16th century intellectual culture. So Erasmus people like that were really um, pushing the idea that rhetoric is the most useful skill you can have and that it's also somehow good for you mm-hmm. to be good at rhetoric, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know, look, like 
somehow thinking persuasively is thinking well and will make you a better person to think well, that kind of idea. And Shakespeare is really worried about rhetoric. So the fact that, I mean, this would be maybe a, this is not inconsistent with what you said about Claudius, but the fact that Claudius comes out and gives this magnificent little opening speech mm. might make us think, oh, that was impressive, but I really don't trust that guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas the fact that Hamlet, it, at least when he's not talking to us directly, Hamlet's usually, you know, his dialogue is zingers and one-liners, mm-hmm. not usually long speeches. Mm-hmm. So he's not a rhetorician. Yeah. He's an ironist mm-hmm. who only uses rhetoric when he's soliloquizing. And that's mm-hmm. a that's a difference between Hamlet and Claudius. And I think characters like Claudius and Julius Caesar are supposed to make us worry about what you can do that's using interesting. speeches. Right. It, Being a sophist or a sophist. It, that's just what I was going to say. I was just going to say, I mean, mm-hmm. two of the, it's just striking me that two of the really great intellectual titans of the West, Shakespeare and Socrates, both seem like they're preoccupied right. about the, the philosophical power of rhetoric when it's divorced from goodness or, you know, like deep truthful moorings that would be richard the third also right he uses his rhetoric to convince everybody that mm. he should be the king he's convincing everyone yeah that's right and it's that's right so, Emily, what, what would you say about like um henry v then so because I, I think you mentioned before the same christmas day speech yeah so there's rhetoric convincing a bunch of people to potentially get themselves killed yes but are we are, is the audience are we supposed to be like hmm or are we supposed to be like yeah Go get them. Go kill those French people. I know. Well, we were talking about that in the teaching of it because, you know, the way it starts is with the two bishops discussing, does he have a right to go to war? Right. And they come out very clearly and he asks them, do I have a right to go to war? Is it Mm. lawful for me? Can I go with God's blessing? And they give him all of their reasons for why he does have a claim to the throne of France. And he says, you know, mark your words because there's going to be women crying over this. There's going to be Mm. husbands that never come home. There's going to be children dead over what you tell me. So I I was thinking so much about that in the teaching because, yeah, I mean, there's that sense that, I mean, people now read it ironically, but it seems to me that he is really saying, you know, Henry was circumspect in thinking about this war. I mean, it's something that we would never even consider now, right? A war of conquest in France. But it, I, I would say that it seems that the play is saying he has been circumspect. He has, he mm. has gone to his authorities and they have given him leave. I don't know. Do you all disagree? But I was thinking it is an uncomfortable play to teach. It is a little bit uncomfortable because... I mean, like especially this, when you know, like, <laughs> World War One, and that that speech was used quite uh, I didn't poignantly. Know that. Oh, yeah. There's, oh, there's I didn't discussions that. about that in the British public schools of, like, St. Crispin's Day. Look, war is glorious. Go, you know, go fight. Isn't, isn't the Olivier version around? Isn't there something about the Olivier version reflecting on sort of British nationalism around World War Two? Is it? I don't. Well. I have never watched that one, so I don't know. But I think you could be right. It's very. I mean, yeah, huh. he's very. So actually, an, an interesting something I remember better than the Olivier version, which I haven't seen since I was in college, is Kenneth Branagh's version. Yes, and absolutely. actually, what you just said 
is a great example of something we were talking about before, which is how different it would have been for the Elizabethans. Because right. Rana seems to be feeling that that scene with the bishops is just dull. Mm. And so his so his way of dealing with it is that Henry is like, look, can I do this or not? Like, yes. let's, let's cut to the yes. chase, right? Yep. Just tell me I can do it. Yep. Whereas for the Elizabethans, they might have been really feeling the question, like, is yes. this okay? Is this and okay? of course the fact that it's bishops deciding, so it's the yes. church giving him permission that has all kinds of resonances for Elizabethans, whereas we don't care. They're just two guys dressed like priests, you know? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I was thinking of that when you were talking about authority. I was thinking of that with Henry V, particularly because he is so concerned with that question. He is very deep. I mean, that's it's given over and over again. He's concerned. And that he understands the cost of war. Do you know what I mean? He's mm. not he's not blind to the cost of war. Um, mm. But I don't know. I mean, I, th- I, I tend to read St. Crispin's Day unironically because he's saying, you know, they're so outnumbered. I mean, they shouldn't win. Yeah. It's it's the, bows, it's so. it's David fighting Goliath. I yeah. mean, the French are definitely Goliath, but I don't know. David wins when David has long bows. Is that is that the <laughs> isn't that <laughs> why they won? They have uh, is that what they speculate? I don't know. I think that's also a thing that you see in Brana's version. Maybe that's where I got this idea. That, I was going to. He makes a big deal about their bows. And yeah. yeah. So actually, I have a question <laughs> for both of you. Why not Shylock? Because that was my kind of uh, other option. So I, I said I said Iago because I think he's more philosophically interesting. But Shylock seems like a candidate for favorite villain. Is it being 21st century people again? Because I have a great deal of, um, what's the word? I feel pity for Shylock. Do you know what I mean? I can't but feel pity for him in a way that maybe softens his mm-hmm. perceived evil. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, maybe it's hard to read Shylock and not a, feel bad for him. So maybe we don't even read him as a, as a villain anymore. We read him as a victim. That's just I what mean, I was going to say. I kind of think I do. No, I do too. It's funny because when we did The Merchant of Venice, I stepped into those podcasts wanting to read him purely as a victim, and I still do. But if you just read the text, he's certainly yeah. not the hero. Yeah. And he's he no, no, no. deceitful he is and he's he's not a good guy. But yeah, I'm the same as you, Emily. I just I think because of the 20th century, I position him more as a victim and not as the perpetrator. Yeah. So, I mean, that's yeah, like so, a hermeneutical so problem, weakens, I guess. It weakens his status as a villain, doesn't it? I mean, in some ways. I don't know. Wait, I, what, what weakens his status as a victim? If you feel pity for him. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Right? You don't feel that he's maybe um, as cunningly evil as some of these others. Yeah. It's a great example of how capacious Shakespeare is that he can it write really this is. play that probably now works less well than in the way that he intended it to because he exactly. wants Shylock to be a convincing villain and yet it winds up working in a different way mm-hmm. that's almost even better so like mm-hmm. obviously the if you prick me do not bleed speech is one of the great meditations on whatever you want to call that like prejudice or you know the the humanity of all humans mm-hmm. and because he's whatever he is shakespeare shakespeare is like yeah i guess yeah sort of hard to avoid the word genius right yeah. he's 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 trying to create this villain 
who's somehow convincing enough that he's given him this speech, which allows us to have a reading of the entire play. Because we, I think we read the play through the lens of that speech, actually, or mm-hmm. experience it through the lens mm-hmm. of that speech. And it's almost like the whole meaning of the play has been turned 180 degrees yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And it works in a way that he didn't intend, but yeah. it's still a way of working, right? This is what, this is why you keep coming back to Shakespeare. This is why he is so brilliant because of that ability, right? It's, it's confounding in some ways. Have either of you seen the play Equivocation no. about Shakespeare? No. It's, it's wonderful. Shakespeare is a major character, but not the central character. And it imagines that what, it, what, what would have happened if Shakespeare wrote the play about the Guy Fawkes plot. I hope I'm remembering oh, that correctly. Yeah. Gunpowder plot, the, yeah. the play really makes Shakespeare into a little bit of a shady character because the other characters are constantly complaining you never say anything. You never just come out and say anything. Mm-hmm. But of course, everything in the background shows how kind of wily Shakespeare is because to say something is to get his head cut off in a way. It's a wonderful play. I think it, it's a really hard play to produce is part of the reason it's not as popular. But it really does delve into this question of how does he do this? How does he make both Julius Caesar and Brutus and Mark Antony all appear to have such powerful claims to be the good guy of the play? Mm. You know, mm. um, we got time for one more question. Shakespeare is kind of this this linking character in a lot of ways, Peter, between the medieval world and the world of the Renaissance, or maybe we would even say something like the modern world, mm-hmm. do you think that we should regard Shakespeare as belonging more to one or the other, more to the medieval world or more to the modern world? That's a great question. Not an easy question. Mm-hmm. Actually, one of the things that's going on in the field of medieval philosophy is that people are arguing that medieval philosophy kind of keeps going until the 17th century or something. Mm-hmm. Because, Makes a lot of for sense. example, there's this kind of widespread assumption that scholastic philosophy, like it was done at the universities, sort of petered out in the early 15th century or something, but actually it was going strong in the time mm-hmm. of Descartes and so mm-hmm. on, right? That, in fact, Descartes was polemicizing against that, so was Hobbes mm-hmm. in the 17th century. And so if you have this like longer idea of when, of the medieval period, then you have to actually think of these developments we've been talking about, even the Reformation, you could think of it as a kind of late medieval mm-hmm. phenomenon, because it comes out of things like, you know, reflection on divine omnipotence and divine mm-hmm. voluntarism. So God being able to just do whatever he wants, and there's mm-hmm. no rules, right? That's a medieval idea from the 14th century. Um, but it kind of culminates in the Protestant Reformation. But I I guess I still think, I mean, I, so one of the things I'm trying to push back against in my podcast is that there's a tendency to take the 15th and 16th centuries, which nobody really loves very much, right? At least not, I mean, they do in some spheres of activity, but not in history of philosophy. So people usually skip from like Aquinas to Descartes, right? Mm. So there's no, 
coverage mm -hmm. of 14th, 15th, 16th century philosophy. And people say, well, you know, that's the Renaissance, but that was kind of more about art. Mm -hmm. You know, so there's Michelangelo and Shakespeare, all very impressive. But for good philosophy, we need to wait another few generations to the 17th century. People just stopped thinking in those 200 years, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's kind that of that. that. People just weren't thinking any longer. Right? Whereas I think that the 15th and 16th century are their own thing. Mm -hmm. And they really set the table for the 17th century in lots of ways. So just to mm -hmm. take one example, what we were talking about before, about this, you know, skepticism and do I have to follow the lead of my king or queen mm -hmm. when it comes to my religious beliefs? The compromise they eventually come up with is basically secularism. Mm. So you have a public sphere, mm -hmm. which is sort of detached from religion, so that people can make up their own minds about religion, because this is the and of course, nobody wants this, right? The Protestants mm -hmm. don't want that the Catholics don't want it. The different kinds of Protestants don't want it. What they want is they want their version of Christianity to be enforced, right? Mm -hmm. But after trying that for long enough, and it just leading to lots of bloodshed, they finally kind of agree. They don't agree to disagree, but they agree to create a a space in which people of different religious groups can do politics oh, together yes. without killing yeah. each other, right? And that's where secularism came from. I mean, this is the great irony, right? Secularism comes from the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. And so the 15th and especially 16th centuries are a time where all this is being born. And so I think we should mention him now, Montaigne, who's a, who's a, a contemporary of Shakespeare, mm -hmm. he's one of the first people to say that this is what should happen. Mm. So he has this very detached view. He's kind of skeptical in his works. And he thinks that skepticism, is, I think he thinks that skepticism is a good stance. Because as he says, at one point, it's putting a very high premium on your beliefs to roast another man mm. alive for them. It's an almost exact quote. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was in French, obviously, but <laughs> so, so he's, he thinks, well, okay, go ahead and like be a good Catholic. That's what he was. He was a Catholic, but bear in mind that basically nobody knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Right. And so if you're really confident about your beliefs, then you're, something has gone wrong. And if you're willing to persecute other people for your beliefs, something has gone really, really wrong. Mm -hmm. And his way of pushing back against that is to say, well, why don't you be a little bit less confident in your beliefs, guys? Mm -hmm. And so all of that, all these themes we were talking about in Shakespeare really resonate with that. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's, that's neither, that's not medieval. And it's mm -hmm. also not early modern. It's, mm -hmm. if you want to put a name on it, it's Renaissance. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think in answer to your question, I would say that Shakespeare is um, specifically a Renaissance figure in a way that I would distinguish from being like an early modern figure. Ah, because yeah, early yeah, yeah. Modern mm -hmm. is the period that kind of reaps the harvest of these developments that we've been talking mm -hmm. about. So he really belongs where he is in the late 16th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, okay, he's genius and all the rest of it, but he's absolutely a creature of his time. Mm -hmm. um, what you're saying about Montaigne, and I know very little about him, reminds me a little bit of the American pragmatists after the Civil War. Pragmatism is that move that kind of is like, man, maybe your rock-ribbed beliefs got us into the Civil War in the first place. Mm -hmm. There was no pliability allowed. Do you see a kind of echo there? Yeah, although, I mean, it's a different move, right? Because pragmatism mm -hmm. isn't a kind of skepticism. Mm -hmm. Pragmatism is actually, at least it, it, it taken to its limits, pragmatism is actually a uh, new theory about what truth means yeah mm -hmm. 
so you define truth in terms of what works rather yeah. than in right. terms of something like correspondence to the to reality, which is how Aristotle would have thought about it. And so actually that's not a skeptical, I mean, it might've looked like skeptic, a skeptical position to its mm -hmm. opponents because they might've thought, well, what William James and Dewey and the other pragmatists yeah. were saying is, well, we're never going to be sure. So let's just go with what works, but that's mm -hmm. actually not what they're saying. What they're mm -hmm. saying is actually way more interesting than that. It's, um, well, what it means to be true is that it works. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you, you've had the, the wrong idea about what truth is this whole time. Mm -hmm. Right. So, uh, although I think you might be right about the context of the Civil War, so surely that's relevant. It also has to do with things like, well, how do we understand science? So the sciences are progressing all the time. And right. they seem to be working quite well. Doesn't that just mean that they're true? Yeah. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. The fact that we could build all these factories. And then James, you know, extends it to religious belief and so on. Mm -hmm. So I think it's it's maybe like comes from a different or, or comes from a similar worry but develops mm -hmm. in a different way because Montaigne yeah, is that really makes a, a lot of sense. and i think in some ways shakespeare is quite a skeptic as well mm -hmm. um dr adamson peter i want to thank you for coming on the show it's been delightful if now i want to have the three of us have dinner somewhere i know too bad you're in munich dinner. too bad you're in munich <laughs> <laughs> we should go see a Shakespeare play together and then. Oh, I would love that. Let's do. We can meet in London. How about that? Yeah, midway. It's fair. We'll meet midway. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think midway is actually in the ocean, but London will be <laughs> more convenient. Yeah. London's <laughs> a, a better place convenient. to see Shakespeare. Hey, do you know who's performing um, in London right now? Who? You mentioned him. To Kenneth Branagh as King Lear. No way. Yeah. He's he finally old enough, enough to play, to play it. What's that? He got old enough to play Lear. Exactly. He's finally old enough to play Is it. he going to like use the Hercule Poirot mustache? I no, but I, I did see a picture and the, the review I read of it, he does have quite a hairstyle. So they, <laughs> they made a reference. Who does he play on Harry Potter? They made a reference to, oh, um, Dr. Lockhart. Is it Lockhart? So the, anyway, it wasn't a favorable review, but I'd be, I'd be willing to go see it. I'd be willing to suffer you. through that for sure. Peter, thanks again for being on the show. Emily, thanks for coming back to the show. And we're going to leave you with my butched opening of this interview, my butchered opening of this <laughs> interview. Um, thanks, everybody, for joining us on The Plays the Thing, your home for all things Shakespeare. Emily, you and I are going to both talk to our special guests. And before we bring them on, let's real quickly tell the story about how we got in contact with Dr. Dr. Peter Abramson. How's that? Dr. Peter Adamson, Tim. Dr. Peter Adamson. Oh my gosh, hold on. I'm doing it all over again. It's so ridiculous. <laughs> Actually, the one I usually get is, I usually get Adam Peterson. <laughs> Don't say it. I'm going to hear gonna it. Say Don't it. say it. He's going to say it. I think it's literally, my name's on your document, so you can read it out. <laughs> I know, I know. I have no excuse at all. <laughs>